This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. Do a little bit of an introduction. I've got to say right at the start, I think if you are a traditional Christian, and if you were brought up in a Christian household, you probably will not get the word today. But if you're a non-Christian or a new Christian, you just might. And the reason why I don't think you're going to get it is because of what happened in 1859, which is a long time ago. Darwin issued a book called The Origin of Species. Not The Origin of Life. The Origin of Life is still a mystery. Nobody knows how the cell came into being. The Bible tells us it's a product of design by God. But scientists, it's still a mystery for them. But that book changed everything. And the church basically split into two. There were those who felt that actually the book, the Bible, was all metaphorical. It's just a story. And that Jesus' message was really a moral one. And those people we call liberal Christians. Whenever you see a TV show with a debate on religious issues, there's normally liberal Christians presenting the church. The other wing of the church, their response to the origin of species... Well, they put their fingers in their ears and they went, la, 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 la. They were so shocked by what Darwin had said that they decided that the whole of the Bible was literally true. And their response to Darwin's statement that we are descended from monkeys was to do a monkey dance and sing a monkey song, which is not the most convincing of arguments, to be honest. We call those people fundamentalists. But in truth, Liberal Christians are really atheists because they don't believe in the word of God. And fundamentalists really are idiots because they believe the whole world is literal. And to understand the Bible, you have to realize it's a mixture of metaphorical and literal. And the reason we've been given the Holy Spirit is to discern the difference between the two. And you can't understand this topic of heaven unless you can make that distinction. For example, you look at the first book of Genesis. It's a mixture of metaphorical and literal. It says, in the beginning. And then it says, and God said, let there be light. Those are literal statements. But if I'd been standing here a hundred years ago and there were scientists here, they'd be laughing their heads off at that. Because they knew the earth and the universe had no beginning. It was just a solid state. And the idea that it began in a burst of light was nonsense. And yet, in the 1920s, they discovered that the planets and the stars were expanding. Therefore, you go back in time, there was a beginning. And in the 1960s, they found that when everything in the universe is compressed down to a space about three parsecs wide, about nine light years across, the temperature rises so high, everything dissolves into light. Everything that there is, you, me, everything, is just condensed light. Now, how is it that somebody who wrote those words... 3,000, 3,500 years ago, knew that the universe had a beginning and it had a beginning in the burst of light 13.7 billion years ago. See, that's literally true. The six days of creation, guess what? That's metaphorical. We know it's metaphorical because A, it's in poetic form, which is normally an indication you're talking about a poem. Secondly, the sun and the moon aren't created day four, so the first three days, guess what? They weren't 24 hours long. And worst of all, on day seven, God has to take a kip. He's tired. I don't know about you, but I don't serve a God that needs to sleep, okay? The six days of creation in Genesis 1, it's about the creation of the Sabbath. Jesus said that man 
was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. This is the first example of health and safety legislation. God is so concerned with our well-being that even slaves should one day off in every seven. Okay? That's what that's about. And you need that discernment to understand the difference between the two. We think the ancients were thick, but they weren't. They were brighter than we are. They knew the difference. They understood it. Calvin said, if you want to study astronomy, don't read Genesis 1. Okay? But we have this feeling that somehow the ancients were really not as bright as we were. We think, for example, they thought the world was flat. Nobody, by the way, has ever thought the world was flat. The existence of the horizon shows that you're living on a sphere. Because what happens when you get to the horizon? There's another horizon, okay? But guess what? Not only did they know, for example, that the world was round, they knew the dimensions and the size of the world. We're going to have a bit of audi audience participation this morning, which I'm sure will end disastrously. <laughs> but I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. And the first question I'm going to ask you this, and this is something that every seven-year-old Greek schoolboy could do 2,300 years ago. You know the world is round. How do you work out the circumference of the Earth just using math? Do we have any takers? Do we have any takers at all? Just, just shout out. Pythagoras' theorem, says somebody. Pi R squared. Pi R squared. <laughs> You're making that up, I can tell. The way the Greeks did it was simply this, okay? They'd go out at night under the pole star, and they'd have somebody walk as far as they needed to until there was a one degree, degree, degree I should say, inclination to the pole star, okay? It's 360 degrees in a circle. Multiply that distance by 360, and you get the circumference of the Earth. The distance is 62 and two-thirds of a mile. You come up with 24,000 miles. They were nearly right. It's actually 24,950. The reason they were slightly wrong is because the world isn't a complete sphere. It's flat at the poles and bulges at the equator. The Muslims in Iraq tried the same experiment 1,200 years ago, and they came up with the same result. They knew that the Earth, this is 2,300 years ago, they knew that the Earth revolved around the sun, something the Roman Catholic Church would torture people for teaching 500 years ago. So again, audience participation. You know that the Earth resolves on the sun. How do you measure the distance from the Earth to the sun? Using math. <laughs> Pretty convinced you have no idea what you're talking about. But somebody did mention it, actually, earlier on. And it was the pastor, Phil, Pythagoras' theorem. Triangulation. What you do is you go out in the noonday sun, okay? You stand beneath the sun. You get somebody to walk as far as they can, okay? They measure the angles of the sun. You know that the sun is at right angles to you. You know the distance between the two. From that, you can work out the length of the other two sides of the triangle and the third angle. The answer they came up with was 90 million miles. Pretty close, it's between 91 and 94 million miles. They knew this stuff. They were bright people. And when it comes to the topic of heaven, they were not fools. They knew that there were three heavens, that there was the atmosphere in which birds flew, that there was the space between the stars and the planets, and there was the abode of God. Trouble is, they used the same word in Greek and Hebrew to describe all three. But when they read the scriptures, they knew the difference between the three, okay? So let me ask you a little question this morning. Did Elijah go to heaven? Let's have your hands. Let's have a show of hands. If you believe that Elijah went to heaven, put up your hands this morning. Nobody, you, have you heard of Elijah? <laughs> 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 
nobody's hands are going up. Oh, one person's hands. Iwin's hands went up. I could just see it through the haze. The reason you believe, if you believe, I'm not quite sure you do actually, uh, the reason why people in general believe that Elijah went to heaven is because it says in Scripture, okay, 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11, Elijah and Elisha were walking and talking together when suddenly chariots and horses of fire separated them and Elijah was carried up into heaven in a whirlwind, okay? And the reason why I suspect you believe that Elijah went up to heaven was because it says so in Scripture. But which heaven is it? Is it the atmosphere? Is it the space between the stars? Or is it the abode of God? It's interesting. Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 13, said this, No one has gone up to heaven except the Son of Man who came down from heaven. That's a very explicit statement. Not only that, but seven years after the event, in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 12, we read this. Elisha is sending a letter to the king of Israel. He says this, Jeroam received this message from Elijah the prophet. This is what Yahweh, the God of your father David, followed, says. And then there's a long list of the things that uh, Elijah is saying to the king. So you've got a choice this morning. You can either believe that Jesus is a liar and that heaven has a postal service, or you have to accept that actually Elijah was just taken up into the air and then he was dumped down in Israel. And in fact, the context tells us that because... In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, we read this. They said to Elisha, these are the prophets, we have 50 good men. Please let them go and look for your master. Maybe Yahweh's spirit has taken Elijah up and dropped him on some mountain or valley. But Elisha answered, do not send men to look for Elijah. The prophets begged Elisha until he relented. And then he said, send the men to look for Elisha. And the prophets sent 50 men to look for Elijah. They looked for three days but they could not find him. The key is this. In order to understand the scriptures, you need that discernment by the Holy Spirit. And you cannot just trust what a translator says. Why? Because they just follow tradition. Okay? They do not interpret the Bible. It's our job to interpret the Bible. And when it comes to talking about what heaven is and where heaven is and how it affects us, you need that input of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're just not going to get it. We need a taste of heaven. If you do not taste heaven on earth, you will go hungry. And if you go hungry, you will grow weak and you will begin to doubt. Spiritual beings need spiritual food. Hopefully today you are cooking for your kids, if you have them, a lovely meal in a baking tin with Welsh lamb and Welsh pork perhaps and all of the lovely potatoes that you've picked from the garden and carrots and all that great stuff. And you will have a lovely meal. However, if you allow your kids to snack this morning on cake and chocolate and other goodies, by the time they get to the main meal, do you know what? They'll turn their nose up at it. They just, they will not be able to eat it. In fact, if you give kids enough tartrazine, okay, they'll begin to exhibit all of the evidences of ADHD. There's nothing actually wrong with them, but do you know what? They will be out of control. They will be overly nervous and overly excited. The excessive emotionalism of so much of Pentecostalism is due to snacking rather than feasting on the food of heaven. False teachings, selfishness, narcissism, and nonsense. In the end, these people just behave like crazy kids. You need to feast on the food of heaven. And if you don't, you will grow weak. So what is the food of heaven? What is the taste of heaven? Well, it's what Jesus ate. What did it say in Scripture? 
Jesus said, my food is chips. No. My food is a Big Mac. No. It's there in the scriptures. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven and to complete his work. Obedience is our food. Obedience feeds us. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, said Jesus Christ. And suddenly things become very clear. The difference between obedient and disobedient Christians is so apparent. The obedient Christian, regardless what problems they may have, guess what? They're strong. They're men and women of oak. Okay? They're building and putting on muscle, right? They can stand up in a storm. They are faithful. They are dependable. They are reliable. It doesn't really matter what happens to them. Do you know? They will just keep on going. And the disobedient Christian is weak. Their problems overcome them. They're unfaithful. They're unreliable. They're actually sad. They're sad people. And it's because they're not feasting on heaven. They haven't got the taste of heaven. And what is the taste of heaven? <coughs> taste of heaven is salt. We take salt for granted, don't we? Because it's all over the place. It's in all our processed foods. But it was such a rare commodity in the old world that the Roman soldiers were paid in part in salt, which is where we get the word salary from. It just means a salt portion. Without salt, you die. It's as simple as that. And the taste of heaven is salt. And salt has a preservative quality. It kills bacteria. And guess what? It also enhances food. What do you do when you go and buy a bag of chips? You may put vinegar on it. You may put ketchup on it. Or if, like me, you have a continental spirit, you may put mayonnaise on it. But the one thing you will definitely put is salt on it because it enhances the flavor. So we are meant to have that taste in us, that taste of salt. But guess what? Salt is meant to be applied, isn't it? It's meant to be put to use. If you put salt in a jar in your kitchen, just leave it there, it's no use. And if you leave the top off salt in the kitchen, guess what? The atmosphere gets to it and it loses its saltiness because it absorbs the moisture. So many Christians, they have a taste of heaven, they've experienced it, but they've been so influenced by the world. You know what? They've actually lost that taste. They've lost that taste of heaven. And there are others... They have the taste of heaven, but they keep it to themselves. They just apply it to themselves or to their family, which is just an extension of their own ego, okay? You're meant to apply salt to meat, aren't you? You're meant to apply salt to food. We're meant to apply the salt, the taste of heaven in us, to the world. If you look at our church, you think of like Jolly Tots. The salt is being applied to the world, okay? People in the church are blessing the kids and the non-Christian parents of the community and they come in and they're blessed with salt good works are how we bless the world with the taste of heaven when i was in aog as a 16 year old we had a volunteer scheme we used to go to Aberbeg, a geriatric home on a saturday morning and it was a wake-up call for me as a 16 year old i tell you what you're seeing those old women they're nursing invisible children and other people their minds had gone and Others, their bodies had fallen to pieces, and I thought to myself, man, this is what happens to us. In the end, our minds and our bodies, they fall to pieces, okay? And I needed to know that as a 16-year-old, because as a 16-year-old, I was arrogant, and I thought, do you know what? I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life. I'd look in the mirror, and I'd see myself, and now I look in the mirror, and I see my dad. Things have changed. <laughs> And when my kids were 16, I didn't give them an option. I told them, you were going to go and work in a nursing home on a Saturday morning. And I always remember, 
Elena coming home at about half past one every Saturday and she was always crying and I'd say what's wrong and it was always the same thing she'd get to the nursing home which is opposite where we live and there'd be an old lady there of 80 9 o'clock in the morning she's standing there with a Tesco bag with some of her belongings and the first thing she'd say is my dad's coming to pick me up today she'd lost all her memories from the age of 80 to 8 she had been a primary school teacher actually I don't know if she had family if she did they'd, they'd turn their back on her and my daughter would take her and say, okay, well, before your dad comes, let's give you some breakfast. And she'd sit down with her. And all that time, all she did was talk about her dad, who she loved and she was looking forward to. And she was scared. She was frightened. And Elena would stay with her and work with her for four or five hours. Salt. Salt being applied where it was needed. Salt being applied to the world. Let me ask you this morning. If you have a taste of heaven in your life, are you applying it? Are you applying it to the world? This is what Jesus said. You are the salt of the earth. Not the salt of the church. The salt of the world, of the earth. The salt that goes into the world. But if salt has lost its taste, how can it be restored? It is then good for nothing but be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Of course, it could be worse. You could be a taste of hell to people rather than a taste of heaven. And there's been plenty of Christians in my experience. I tell you what, there's a root of bitterness in their heart. My goodness, some of the things they say. Particularly mature, established Christians dealing with new, young, vulnerable Christians. Some of the things they say to them, I just don't understand it. You know, I remember some of the guys I led to the Lord when I was 16. One of them, Stephen Williams. He'd been a Christian three weeks. He came up to me after a meeting. He said, is it true if I go to a pantomime, I go to hell? Well, I've been a Christian three months. I didn't know. And I said, well, what's going on? She, he said, well, I, I told that old lady over there that we're, the school's going to a pantomime in, in Bristol on Wednesday. We're going to see Mother Goose. And she said, if I go and see her, I go to hell. I, I didn't know the answer. I've been a Christian three months. And you think to yourself, why would you burden a young Christian with that kind of nonsense? Seriously, come on. He might have become a man of oak, okay? But even an acorn is tender when it's young. You know, you... Don't you do some gardening? Don't you treat new plants with, with gentleness and protect them and water them and feed them? And, and you as this old lady kicking this plant across the floor. He left the church. I don't know what happened to him. I call those people zombie Christians. They're dead. They are dead inside. And if you've ever seen uh, The Walking Dead, you know what they're like, okay? They look for people who are alive and they come after them and they feed on them, Okay? Thankfully, they're not like Dawn of the Dead zombies who can run faster than Linford Christie. <laughs> I mean, those ones, you can't get away from them. But Dawn of the Dead zombies, they walk slowly. And these dead zombie Christians, they walk slowly, okay? Uh, so you can get away from them. Um, but as in Dawn of the Dead, the only way you can deal with them, you've got to hit them in the head, haven't you? You can't shoot them in the stomach. You've got to hit them in the head. So if you're a young Christian, you're approached by a zombie Christian, just hit them in the head, ask them to explain the Trinity, and while they look confused, you make your escape, okay? <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. Now, I've been in some of those churches, and I know what he's talking about, but you know what? Heaven can be other people as well. Friends are the family you choose, and the church, really, at the end of the day, it's not an organization or a building, it is your friends in the faith. And, you know, if, if you have tasted of heaven, then you can bless people with your words and with your actions. You know, Scripture says, doesn't it, uh, Proverbs eighteen twenty one: life and death are in the power of the speech. You will eat the fruit of what you say. And that's been over-spiritualized and 
It's been taught that, you know, if you say bad things, you know, negative things, negative things will happen to you. No, I don't think it's that. You be a blessing to other people, guess what? They will be a blessing to you. And if you are a curse to other people, they will be a curse to you. The problem with a taste of heaven is that sometimes it makes you realize how bad the world is. When life was nasty, brutal and short, heaven was our hope as a relief from our suffering, our reward for exploited labor, our reunion with lost loved ones, and also the restitution of justice where injustice occurs. And there's always been this tension, I think, in the life of a Christian who has a taste of heaven between needing to be here to do the things that God wants us to do. Obedience means fulfilling, completing the work that God has given us. But at the same time, a longing to be with Christ in heaven and to be out of this world. Paul expresses it brilliantly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 to 10. He says this, We are full of confidence when we remember that to live in the body means to be exiled from the Lord. Going by faith and not by sight, we actually want to be exiled from the body and make our home with the Lord. Whether we're living in the body or exiled from it, we are intent on pleasing him. For the truth about ourselves we brought out on judgment day, when each of us will get what he deserves for the things that he did in the body. There is always that tension. From my earliest years, I've never wanted to be here. I've always known there's a better place. Even before I was a Christian, I knew that. And there is still that tension in me now between the two. The need to be here and to do things and to be obedient and a longing, a longing for heaven. And I think if you've got that in you, if you've got that tension in you, you cannot just have a taste of heaven. You can experience heaven on earth, okay? The taste of heaven comes in obedience. When you worship God on a Sunday morning or on a plane traveling somewhere or in the car or wherever, do you know what? When you're obedient to worship God, you will have a taste of heaven. And when you do good works and you bless people, you will have a taste of heaven. And when you begin to live that kind of life, you can begin to have spiritual experiences. Paul, again, gives a very good description of an experience which is really quite mystical. I think he's talking about himself, even though he talks in the third person. But it really is illuminating. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 to 5. I know a man in Christ who was taken up to the third heaven. Notice he's making the distinction between atmosphere, space, and the abode of God 14 years ago. I don't know if the man was in the body or out of it. God knows. All I know is that this man went to paradise. I don't know if he was in the body or away from his body, but he heard things that he's not able to explain. He heard things that cannot be put into human language. I don't know if we can go to heaven now and come back. Some people claim they can. Paul doesn't know, okay? He's an apostle. You know, he's as good as they get. He didn't know, but he had that experience. You can dream of heaven. You can have a taste and an experience of heaven on earth in this life. And you need it because you are a spiritual being living in a body borrowed from a monkey. And you need that spiritual being to grow. And if you don't, guess what? The monkey will dominate in your life. And that is not a good outcome. Okay, second thing. Heaven is our home. If you feel that you don't belong on the earth, if you feel that you don't fit in, if you feel that the values of worldly success and excess are repulsive to you, then maybe heaven is your home. On the other hand, if you want to be the next apprentice, if you want to be the next Kim Kardashian, if you live to buy big cars and expensive clothes, aspire to live in a house larger than your needs, desire fame and fortune and want to create another's envy and admiration for your lifestyle choices, then maybe you should admit that the only God in your life is yourself because you've made earth your permanent home. 
problem with the name it and claim it teaching, the word of faith movement and prosperity gospel heresy, is that it is given a spiritual sheen to selfishness. So that you end up storing your treasure on earth and living for now only. Best example, Joel Austin's awesome book, Your Best Life Now, which as John MacArthur said is only true if you're going to hell. Do you know, when I was a kid, my aunties, I had a lot of them, and very few of them were related to me, they all said the same thing. This is the best time of your life. And my childhood was hell. And I used to think to myself, Lord, kill me now. I just can't go on. But you know what? It was a lie. It was a lie. The best was yet to come. And I, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what kind of life you're living. But do you know what? The best is yet to come. There is, there, is, there is a glory that is awaiting us and we can have a taste and experience of it on this life if we get our priorities right. Matthew chapter 6 verse 21 says this, where your heart is, that is where your treasure will be also. If your heart is with your kids, okay, then your kids will be your treasure. And people will live for and are prepared to die for their treasure. Okay? You will live for your kids. You'll do everything for them. And do you know what? If somebody tries to hurt your kids... You will come between that thing, that person, and you will be willing to lay down your life to preserve the life of your kids. If your treasure is in food, guess what? You will just live to eat. And you will be prepared to die for your treasure. You will be prepared to become morbidly obese and suffer the possibility of losing your limbs due to diabetes and all of the complications that go with that. If your treasure is methamphetamine or cocaine or heroin or alcohol, you will live for those addictions and you are prepared to allow them to kill you because that's where your treasure is. But if your treasure is in heaven, then you will live to serve God in this life. And do you know what? If the worst comes to the worst, and if you are in some context where you have to choose between denying the faith or losing your life, you will be willing to become a martyr. Why? Because Heaven is where your treasure is. And everybody is willing to die to preserve their treasure. Got a nice house? Don't get too comfortable in it. It's not your home. Your home is heaven. Got a rubbish house or you're homeless? Don't get too worked up. Jesus has spent 2,000 years building you a mansion. John chapter 14, verse 2 to 3. There are many rooms in my father's house. I would not tell you this if it were not true. I am going to prepare a place for you. After I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to you. Then I will take you with me so that you can be where I am. The risk of loving riches is that it can ruin your spiritual health. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19 says this. Warn those who are rich that they are not to look down on other people. Tell them to trust in God, not their money. Money cannot be trusted. But God gives us everything we need to be happy. Tell them that they're to do good and be ready to share their wealth. By doing this, they will be investing in a heavenly future that is the only real life. What was that line in Bohemian Rhapsody? Is this the real life? Is it just fantasy? The Bible answers the question that Freddie asked. This is not the real life. This is a fantasy. The real life is the life to come. Thank you, Queen. The real treasure that we've been given actually in this life is the gospel 2 timothy chapter 1 verse 14 the te this teaching is a treasure that you have been trusted with protect it with the help of the holy spirit who lives inside us and i tell you for the last 150 years the church across the western world has failed to protect the treasure that is this book either because it's all metaphorical or it's all literal 
people don't trust us as a consequence. We've let our God down in that respect. The problem is, so much biblical teaching is focused on the here and now, on what I can get, not what I can give, on what I can have now, not on what I can have later. The people of God, unfortunately, reflect the values and the impulses of a generation that wants instant gratification, when our faith is the ultimate form of deferred gratification. All the big rewards come after death. Look at the heroes of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. There's a big list there in Hebrews 11 of all of them, from Adam onwards. And this is what it says from verse 13. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and welcomed them from afar, having acknowledged that they were just strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like this, they make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land that they'd come from, they would have had opportunity to return to it. But as it is, they desire a better home that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You have to have that in your understanding if you're going to live a life that is pleasing to God. Knowing that heaven is our home stops us being disappointed by defeat, failure, illness, poverty, loss of loved ones, and it will curtail and limit our envy of others who seem to glide through life as if on a golden coaster. If the expected feast fails to materialize in this life, then you're set for a banquet in heaven. It helps us prioritize and put things in context once you know that heaven is your home. Okay, the third thing, where will heaven be? Well, there is a theme running through Scripture about a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 11 says this, I'm creating a new heaven and a new earth. The troubles of the past will be forgotten. No one will remember them. But I particularly like what it says in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the temple of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and he will be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. We're going to go to heaven, and heaven is coming to us, because the third heaven is where God lives, and he is going to live with men and women, and that God is Jesus Christ. But where will heaven be? Will it be on earth? I mention that because the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that God will come to earth, and the earth will become heaven. It will be restored. I only really mention that because we used to be in covenant ministries, and covenant ministries used to teach that as well. That was their teaching, that the earth would be turned into heaven. Dispensationalists who believe that the millennium reign of Christ will be on earth with Jesus ruling the world from Jerusalem, they in a sense believe that the earth will become heaven. I don't see it myself. I, I, I just don't believe it. There's too many scriptures which talk about the world being destroyed. The one I read out when we discussed hell a couple of weeks ago, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, is very clear. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and with a roar the sky will vanish, and the elements will catch fire and melt, and the earth and all that is on it will be burnt up. Since everything is coming to an end like this, you should be living holy and righteous lives while you wait and long for the day of God to come, when the sky will dissolve in flames 
and the elements melt in the heat. What we are waiting for is what he promised, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Which heaven? First heaven with birds flying in the atmosphere, second heaven between the planets and the stars, third heaven where God is living. Well, it can't be the first one because there's no reference to birds. And it can't be the third one because this is the description of a new earth where God will live with men. We're talking about a new Jerusalem where Jesus will live with us. So this heaven that's mentioned in the scripture must be the second heaven. This is literally talking about a new planet to live on with new constellations in the sky. Revelation talks about the millennium reign of Christ when Christ will reign for a thousand years. Have you ever thought that maybe Jesus will spend a thousand years teaching us to act and think like him while we live in new bodies? After all, the only thing you're taking into the new world is your character. And it doesn't matter how faithful you are, and it doesn't matter how much of a blessing you are to the world. You're still imperfect, and so am I on a big scale. My character is the only thing I'm taking into this new life. I will be given a new body. I will live on a new world. The only description of it is that there's no sea there, which I'm fine with because I'm scared of deep water. But you might, you might be upset by it. You might like boating and sailing. But I'm taking my character there, so maybe this is the place and time where I can be taught by Jesus Christ and changed. There's a promise given to Abraham in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, which is very interesting. I will make your family as many as the stars of heaven. We now know roughly how many stars there are in the universe. It's a hundred octillion. That's one with 29 noughts behind it. That is a lot of stars. It's a big place. Back in the 1930s, Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist astronomer and physicist, said something fascinating. He said this, The laws of physics have been deliberately designed with regard to the consequences they produce. The universe is a put-up job. Back in the 30s, this atheist said this, The universe is the product of design. He was the first one to use the term. If you want to read a book by Martin Rees called Just Six Numbers, he outlines the six fundamental mathematical reasons why the, un why the universe is artificial. It's not real. It's not the real thing that physics tells us it is. It's a false thing that actually science tells us it is. Put all that together, and we've got a strange consequence. Point a radio telescope at the sky, and the universe is empty. There's nothing out there. You know, if there are that many stars and the universe is 13.7 billion years old, shouldn't there have been billions and billions of civilizations that have risen up, developed TV and radio, and even if they only lasted a short while, those broadcasts would still be traveling through space? And yet you listen to those radio telescopes and there's nothing there. The weirdest thing of all, the universe is artificial and it's empty. And the promise of God to Abraham is your descendants will number the stars. It's just possible that maybe heaven is going to be the prospect of our species filling the universe. In the parable of the pounds, Luke 19, Jesus says of those people who have behaved properly, who've done well with the talents, with the pounds they've been given, he says, you will rule over five cities, and you will rule over ten cities, and you will rule over fifteen cities. Heaven 
is not about sitting on a cloud and playing a harp, okay? Heaven is about having responsibilities. It is about having rule and authority. It talks about ruling over cities, but I wonder, will we rule over worlds? Strip away the religious language of our faith. And our faith isn't actually a religion at all. Religions are all about making objects, places, days, foods, people sacred. And if you transgress the sacred, religion will hurt you. Religion will kill you if need be. But James in his letter said that true religion was helping those in need, blessing those who were widows and orphans, in his phrase. It means being a blessing to others. That's true religion. It's being salt, the taste of heaven applied to the world. All of the rules and regulations of God. There is a freedom in our faith. You don't need to be scared, okay? Religion cannot touch you when you're living a spiritual life. And when you look at the Bible through those eyes, which I think Christians find very hard to do, what you read is this. We once lived in another place. It's called Eden. Where we messed up. We were then dumped on earth and given bodies borrowed from monkeys and allowed to live and die while being observed. We're being watched. The book of life at the end of the book of Revelation says it's a record of how we've lived our lives. The creator of the universe, who is Jesus Christ, becomes a human being, teaches us how to live and love one another, and in return we kill him because we're bad people. But he rises from the dead and he's gone away to prepare a place for us, and he will return and take us to that place where we'll be given new bodies and live new lives on a new planet with a new constellation of stars in the sky where he will teach us while those who rejected him will be left on a dying earth that's going to be burnt to a cinder. A rescue mission from a dying world is another scripture interstellar or knowing or the day the earth stood still. It's interesting, when Christians effectively abandoned communicating to the world what the truths of the Bible were, the world still had questions and the questions are still the same. Where do we come from? Why are we here? and Where are we going to? And they can't trust us because we no longer believe really in the Bible. So what do they do? They turn to science fiction. They turn to the movies. They turn to the TV. And you look at a film like 2001, it answers those three questions. Life was birthed by a monolith, and the reason we're here is to make contact with the creator, and the film ends with somebody traveling off to Jupiter and beyond. Prometheus, a movie that came out two years ago, much the same sort of thing. Aliens came here and seeded life on Earth, and then they go off and they try and make contact with them. Science fiction is answering the questions that the Bible has actually answered because we're not conveying the answer to the world. All religions are earthy in nature, obsessed with material things, but heaven is our home. And I am not saying that Jesus Christ is a spaceman, okay? Elijah sees something in the sky and he calls it a fiery chariot. We see something in the sky and we call it a spaceship. We have this tendency to interpret spiritual phenomena on the basis of our own material technology. But that isn't true. The spiritual reality is beyond technology. We are prone to do that. But the simple fact is this. Science is not the enemy of our faith. Rather, if we allow it to flow all the way through, it's actually the confirmation. And if you're able to look at the Bible with rational eyes, you'll see truths there that can be confirmed with science. So let me end with a fun-filled fact. Uh, X-Files is back, although it just finished last week, actually, didn't it? Um, I think Mulder and Scully are too old to be doing that sort of stuff, but um, I did like it when X-Files was around about 10, 15 years ago. I want to believe the truth is out there. Great stuff. 
from the 50s onwards, science fiction and all those movies, like I said, they were trying to answer the questions that the Bible actually answers. There aren't any aliens out there, though. I'm sorry to tell you. I, I think people are being deluded when they see spaceships and all of that sort of stuff. Maybe there's angelic encounters that they're misinterpreting. But on the whole, I think the universe is empty. But the odd thing is the Bible calls us aliens, doesn't it? It actually says it time and time again. We're aliens and sojourners. In fact, Jesus actually said that he is an alien. Did you know that? John chapter 8, verse 23. And he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are from this world. I am not from this world. John chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of this world, the world would love you. Yet because you're not of this world, because I chose you out of this world, the world hates you. John chapter 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight for me so that I would not be arrested. But my kingdom is not from here. Bible actually says, John chapter 12, 31, 14, 30, 16, 11, Ephesians 2, 2, that the devil is the god of this world. I guess when we got kicked out of Eden, he got kicked out as well. And so we both ended up here, like a bunch of students living in a bed sit. It's really difficult, okay? Especially if one of them is making too much noise and threatening to kill you all the time. And the fun-filled fact, well, is simply this. Every living thing on this planet has a circadian rhythm. It's the internal body clock, okay? Plants have it. Animals have it. Birds have it. Fish have it, okay? And unsurprisingly, it's 24 hours. Why? Because the planet revolves every 24 hours. But one species doesn't have it, and that's human beings. Our circadian rhythm, our internal clock, is 24.65 hours, which is why roughly every three days you sleep in, because you're out of kilter with the rotation of the Earth. And this is the odd thing. The rotation time of Mars is 24 hours, 0.65. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 59